0: We'd love to hear your thoughts on this show and other Washington Post podcasts so we can keep making things you want to hear. To share your feedback, go to WashingtonPost.com podcastsurvey podcast survey, all one word. Tell us what you like, what you don't, and what else you want to hear from us. Again, that's WashingtonPost.com podcastsurvey podcast survey. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Derek Black was supposed to be the new face of white nationalism. His godfather is David Duke. His father created the white nationalist website Stormfront. Black himself used to host a radio show and run workshops pushing a white nationalist message. And then in college, he changed. Listen to Derek talk about his journey out of hatred, how belief in white nationalist ideals are more widely held than you'd think, and the danger the Trump presidency poses to our nation as he rides white nationalist coattails. Hear it all, right now. Derek Black, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on.
0: So I didn't know anything about you until my colleague at The Post, Eli Saslow, sent me an email saying, I've just written this book uh, called Rising Out of Hatred. It is about this guy named R. Derek Black who was basically the the heir apparent to to the throne if you will of white nationalism who came through on the other side and I read the book it was fantastic did the podcast with with Eli put it out into the world and unbeknownst to me you were a, a subscriber to this podcast and just was on a walk and you were listening and discovered you were the subject of conversation.
1: Yeah, that, that's exactly my experience. I, I, was, I was still living in Chicago at that point and I was doing my morning commute and your show came on and it's, it's that weird surreal experience where you, you like slowly realize that this is not just weirdly appropriately interesting, but actually it's just about you. So <laughs> it's going to be too specific.
0: Well, what what was fascinating about your story um is how, well, one, you know, your story is, you know, in some ways, quintessentially American. Um, In, you know, white supremacy and white nationalism is woven into the DNA of America. And hearing your story in the time of Trump um, made it even more salient. Why did you uh, participate with with eli to do the book that he did and then we'll get into present day stuff
1: right i part of it was personal relationship um eli is an amazing writer and his real skill is in telling complicated stories and i i feel like my story doesn't make sense without all the context uh that i i'm not proud of it i don't look back and try to uh, ask for any kind of praise from it. In fact, I'm still quite embarrassed and like filled with a lot of shame that I spent 20 years of my life really committed to white nationalism. And so if uh, if there was anything good that was going to come out of it, it was going to be in telling the stories of everybody around me at that time, all the people who, who who were affected by my family's activism, all the people who still engaged me, whether that was in protesting the fact that I was on campus or whether it was in like, quiet conversations where they would dismantle all the evidence that I thought my ideology was supported by, and, and all of that together felt like the the important part of it and so if I was going to wrestle with it it just it needed to be in the hands of someone and and in a format that could really encompass all that
0: and Eli is such a fantastic storyteller uh, that he was the perfect person to tell your story so now that we are a couple of minutes into this conversation and people are probably still wondering well who is this Derek Black guy who are you or who were you
1: yeah i was born into one of the leading families of the white nationalist movement that my my father founded the first white supremacist website online be- before the world wide web even came online by his his closest friend growing up was david duke uh they had come together doing white nationalist activism in the 1960s and 70s uh, they had run the clan together they had quit the clan and gone into politics together they had done all of that for decades by the time I was born. And then I spent the first decades of my life growing up with all these leaders of this movement that they had built coming over to the house or traveling around the country to meet people who had fought against the civil rights movement in the 1950s, who are now elderly men sitting around the table talking about how they were so worried about the direction of the country. And I wasn't just a bystander. I got deeply involved. I ran for Republican local county office in 2008 and then won that election. It became a a national story in my own right. And all of that was up until I went to a small liberal arts college and had a many year experience there being the most controversial thing on campus because it was a a social justice oriented community that was now trying to wrestle with the fact that an explicit white supremacist was living on their campus and after many years there my my ultimate experience was wrestling with how my ideology was was harming people how it was factually wrong how it was uh how it was just in it, could, it was not able to be something that I could continue committing to, that I, that I could be, feel good about myself. And so I publicly condemned it in 2013 and have spent the years then since then just trying to figure out what is my, what is my role and what is my responsibility now.
0: You were at um, New College of Florida. Uh, as you mentioned, um, David Duke is basically your, your godfather, and he was basically grooming you to be an heir to um, the throne, if you will, Uh, what he saw in you was a fresh face, a young face, but also um, someone who put a new face on white supremacy. You, You didn't engage in the activities that they did in terms of hurling racial epithets and stuff like that. You made white nationalism accessible to more people because you were nicer about it. Know when you were on uh, when you were at college and again, New College of Florida in Sarasota. You were still involved. You were still doing your daily radio show from there for a while, right?
1: Yeah. When when I showed up, I was not coming there because I was looking at my mind changed. I was still completely convinced that it was inarguable that there was it was just factually right. It wasn't some. Uh, thing that I had to hold my breath and believe. I really thought white nationalism was true and that we were the real heroes for the being the only people who were going to advocate it. And I hosted uh, co-hosted a radio show at that point via the phone every morning before my roommate would wake up. I'd go out onto the lawn in front of the dorm and try to host it and come back. And when people would ask me, I'd say, oh, you know, just, just calling my parents, you know, talk, talking to the family.
0: <laughs> Which in essence, I mean, that wasn't untrue. You were talking Talking to the family but a large family um, uh, nationwide or was your radio show global do you know if you had a global audience
1: it was in florida it was an am radio station and okay. then it had an on- online stream so white nationalism is essentially a global movement. And so the, the actual adherents of it come from every country in the world. And so when, you're, when you have online streams, people are logging in or, or downloading the streams afterwards from, from all points. And then the, the appeal to just average people was, was, was national. I think we would get truckers who would download it. It was kind of early earlier podcasting and uh, would download it and like call in or talk to us afterwards.
0: Now, you said you, you went to college not to get your mind changed. So why did
1: you go to college? Just to go to college, get the
0: degree, and keep moving? Yeah.
1: I mean, my family... uh both of my parents had college degrees. Uh, Most of my relatives had college degrees. And my immediate family that advocated white nationalism really saw having a degree and being respectable in some form as an essential part of advocating this belief system. So there there was a real significant part of going to college that was becoming a better white nationalist. It was becoming a better writer, uh, getting the credentials that society expects of you, being able to go out and talk to people on their own terms like those were the things i thought i was going to get at college
0: and instead um in eli's book he writes you know, one of the first people you meet because you got lost trying to find your way to campus was uh, a latino american as your time you know the more time you spent on campus your group of friends included that latino american uh an orthodox an orthodox jewish kid um there were gay kids and transgender kids who you were you were socializing with with in that time I, I I'm still trying to understand at what point did the did the the dam in your consciousness start to break? Was it the interactions with those different people or was it Allison?
1: <laughs> Both <laughs> the the But that first semester I was there, nobody knew my background. Uh, And and I I still am not quite sure how important that was to the whole experience. And uh, the fact that I was able to spend months there getting to know people and building relationships that imploded when it came out on campus that i was hosting this radio show that i was not just from a family that advocated this but that i was actively involved in it myself like they they very rightly said you've been lying to us by by omission by not talking about this but you know the the how this affects my life like they talked about it during that semester i would be in these conversations where people would talk about how racism had affected them, how uh, coming from another state where there was a Klan group, a town over, and how they, they'd been afraid growing up because of that. And then I realized through that conversation and didn't mention it, that I, I know the people you're talking about. Hmm. I met them at a conference a couple of years ago and, and just seeing the fear in the eyes of my friend and realizing that I know who you're talking about and I've never seen them that way. I think that experience that that didn't change my mind. I didn't come out of that saying, oh, I'm gonna abandon white nationalism. I thought it was still right. But that was probably the first seed so that when I did come back to campus after everyone knew me, I was willing to engage because I these were real people. They were real people who I couldn't dismiss. They weren't anonymous people on the internet. They I knew how smart they were. I taken classes with them. I knew them as full human beings, and so when the campus turned against me once they realized what I was advocating, I couldn't just say, "Oh, you uh, don't matter." I had to say, "What? What is it about this that your misunderstanding? Maybe what is it about it that I could clarify?" Uh, it, it, that that's the instinct that took years. But I think that's the beginning of these conversations with what you alluded to with Allison, with uh, people, these uh, Shabbat dinners I started attending that allowed for me to even be open to hearing it.
0: And Allison um, it turns out to me anyway, in Eli's book, turns out to be the heroine in your story, because at first she shunned you. She didn't want to have anything to do with you. And then you somehow you you. Came together at a, a social event, and then just kept meeting, kept talking, and then this organic relationship formed. But she t- she took it upon herself as a mission to I don't want to say change you, but to open your mind further to a wider world out there. Or am I getting getting that wrong?
1: No, I think that, I think that's right. It she she challenged me that. The context on campus was a large number of people uh, didn't know me, weren't weren't roommates with me, didn't necessarily see me around. And I think the right response from most people on the campus is to say, this is unacceptable. Uh, You know, I think it's easy to look back on my story and say, it's the really the private conversations and the kindness that that's essential. Obviously that's how you change people's minds because if you yell at them, they don't change their minds. But I, I really look back on this and I say, most of the campus was doing the right thing by saying we do not tolerate white supremacy because it makes people on our campus feel unwelcome. It makes people on our campus feel unsafe. And so our priority is making you feel safe and not trying to accommodate a white supremacist who is not trying to accommodate them. And that was Allison's position at the beginning too, was that what am I going to do except assert that racism is not welcome in my community? And what slowly changed was the fact that her roommate Uh, was uh, observantly Jewish and was hosting Shabbat dinners on Friday night. And he and I had gotten to know each other before he knew my background, before the school knew my background. And he started inviting me week after week to these dinners. And she wanted to be able to keep coming to these things with her friends and and her suite mates. And eventually she started attending and I was there. And if you ask her, the way she'll put it is that she realized and felt that she had an obligation to challenge, uh, that it was it was it was accommodating to keep attending dinners and then never push back, never say, how can you believe this? Because of those dinners, we would not explicitly talk about white nationalism. We talk about everything else. And Matthew Stevenson, who was hosting those dinners, uh, we talk about it now, he, he saw his own identity. As challenging enough, and that if he confronted me about my beliefs, maybe I'd just stop coming to the dinners. And so, Allison, who was not Jewish, who was not a person of color, uh, she felt like her role in this was to say, Can we talk about this? Uh, could you explain to me how you can possibly? think that coming to these dinners uh, with people who are dehumanized by your ideology is compatible with believing this ideology? Like, what do you think is the reality here? What do you think is your, your, what are the facts behind it and how do you even reconcile any of this stuff? And those are conversations that went for years and years and I, they're obviously essential. And Allison and I, full disclosure, are, are now, married and life partners, uh, but... Wait, what? <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. That, that, that's something that came out of uh, the coronavirus shutdown as an elopement. So I guess this is the public <laughs> announcement of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to
0: I have to tell you, I mean, uh, congratulations. I'm excited to hear it. As I said, Alison is the heroine of your story, and there's an incredible vignette in um Eli's book rising out of hatred where she comes home with you and you know is there with your your I've, correct me if i'm wrong with your parents and and other relatives and and Eli gets into all of her emotions in that moment and you could really feel for her um i want to fast i want to fast forward now and well at least fast forward until 2016 in your op-ed in the New York Times um, with the headline, Why I Left White Nationalism. And this came out a few weeks after the election of Donald Trump. What moved you to write that op-ed? And what was it it about the election of Donald Trump that pushed you to make such a a public pronouncement?
1: It, It was really that election that made me feel like I needed to speak out that it was in 2013 that I had already spent years in college and I finally condemned this ideology that I I had come to a point where I didn't believe it I knew it was wrong but it was still another hurdle because it was going to break all the relationships my family if I publicly said this is wrong and I condemn it and I did that in 2013 and I spent the preceding or spent the following three years trying not to get involved. Uh, When reporters would reach out, I'd say, I don't have anything more to say about this. I I said the wrong thing for 21 years. I'm, I'm out of this and I'm done. And it was watching through 2015 into 2016 where his campaign used the same talking points that I had trained people in seminars about crime in cities, being insidious and being anti-American, how immigrants were changing the face of the country, how there was this real threat that political correctness was, was not innocuous. It was trying to push aside American values, these sort of coded things which were ways to get people to agree with white nationalism more broadly, were coming out of his campaign, sometimes explicitly from him, sometimes through him retweeting actual white nationalist accounts. And then I couldn't just stand by and say that my responsibility was done. Uh, I, I didn't know exactly how to do it. Uh, but I, I felt like I could provide some level of context to say that this is not out of nowhere. The the things that he is saying, the ways that he is speaking to people have a have a history. And that history is primarily the white nationalist movement.
0: One of the, the key paragraphs in that Time's op-ed, you wrote the wave of violence and vile language that has risen since the election is only one immediate piece of evidence that this campaign's reckless assertion of white identity comes at a huge cost more more and more people are being forced to recognize now what i learned early our country is susceptible to some of our worst instincts when the message is packaged correctly that was november 26th 2016 here we are almost 4 years later and that is even more true today than it was when you wrote it, right?
1: Yeah, I, I believe so. I, I think throughout this presidency, there has been a consistent drumbeat of speaking like a white nationalist. And, and that's not to say, I do not think that Donald Trump is a white nationalist. I wanna be clear about that. What I, what I have seen happening is definitely people within the campaign, fully aware of white nationalism. We, we've seen that in emails that were exposed from Stephen Miller, who was linking to explicit white nationalist websites in dropping stories to Breitbart before the presidential election of 2016, surrounded by people who understand the white nationalist movement and Donald Trump and his campaign constantly pushing messages that come directly out of the white nationalist movement in order to elicit that same response that got David Duke got elected on in 1989, decades ago. Um,
0: I, I found something interesting you just said. Donald Trump is not a white nationalist. Given everything that we've seen and all the, the policies and things that he's pushed, why shouldn't I view him as a white nationalist? I mean, I pretty much say so on television and in my columns every day.
1: Right. Maybe I should be more clear about my definitions. Uh, it's partly because of my background and partly because of the way I, I talk about this, that I reserve white nationalism to talk about this social movement. It, it's not incredibly large. It's hard to know exact, well, exact numbers. We're talking about 30, 40,000 people probably who are, dues-paying members or donors who get literature, who sign on to explicitly white nationalist forums, and who have this whole history. There are there are heroes within this movement, people uh, who have become murderers and sit in prison and are talked about like they're prisoners of war. There are uh, protests that people remember from the 1970s. There's a whole history and a language that goes within this subgroup, this social movement of people who are really self-consciously advocating white nationalism and trying to push an agenda. And I try to keep that separate from, I I think what you could probably term just broader white supremacy, uh, racist ideas about white people being uh, endangered or threatened. Uh, These sort of more broad things that can definitely get votes and can definitely get a lot of broad support, but are, are separate from meeting up and trying to figure out how you're going to push the white nationalist agenda, that level of being explicit and that level of being committed in your life. I, I, that, that's what I usually mean when I say white nationalist. And by that, that's not Donald Trump. Donald Trump is feeding off of it. He's using it. He's building on the messages that that movement has created over years.
0: And and so so even still, even though he's feeding off it, white nationalists, around the country and maybe even around the world view this as a good moment in the movement because he's president of the United States?
1: I think I think it's probably complicated. Like There are definitely lots of white nationalists online who think, who are very disappointed, who think that he's sucked the oxygen from the room, who think that he doesn't push things hard enough, right? Which seems wild to hear, but I think you definitely would find that a lot within people who've been working on this for decades. And what they would say is that he is riding a wave. He's riding the same wave that they identify. That There's a fundamental belief in my family and among all the people who think that they can gain, if not broad support, then at least a significant amount of support from average people in America, there is this belief that their ideas are not so radical, that when they say that they think being proud to be white is something that should drive your politics, that they think they can get a lot more support than people are usually willing to explicitly say. That when they say that they don't want immigration from non-white countries, that they think that they can get a lot more support than people typically are willing to say out loud. And most respectability white nationalists I think would say that Donald Trump is not necessarily the savior, that he is proving their point. He's saying that, he's saying what they have been saying for years and doing it in a better, more well-packaged way that's gaining more support from the political mainstream and so the danger there is that he's going to use all their messages but he's not going to actually enact this insane totalitarian white Ethno state—that is their real goal.
0: And and so, given what you just said, I, I don't know. To to my mind, with you know, ma- <clears throat> masked and unidentified federal agents in Portland, sh- going to Chicago, Albuquerque, being fanned out around the country, that we are getting to this, or if not already in, you know, an authoritarian. Um, sort of sotto voce, white nationalist state, or am I being hyperbolic? I, I don't know.
1: I don't know. I, I mean, I've got the same concerns. I, I would direct attention to when I, when I say that he has used the same rhetoric as white nationalists, one major piece of that rhetoric is the way he talks about cities. Uh, I I remember I ran this election uh, for a local county seat in the Republican Party in 2008, and I was not identified as a white nationalist yet. I was uh, just going around door to door uh, the same year that Barack Obama was running for the first time. And one of my major talking points in in Palm Beach County in South Florida was look at Chicago. Uh, I, I went door to door because white nationalists reference Chicago as an example of the hell on earth that multiculturalism creates, that uh, uh, places with lots of black people create. And and it's this way to signal to people with racist ideas a way that they can more subtly say that. And that has always been a central part of Donald Trump's rhetoric. It, It is that sort of signaling that Chicago is extremely has this high gun violence, like Baltimore has this high gun violence, look around uh, at St. Louis, look at cities across the country, and then say, Oh, that's, that's wrong. That's what's wrong with our country. And financialists are very clear about what they're trying to do. They're trying to get you to say, maybe it's about race, maybe it's about the kinds of people who live there and get you to be more explicit about it. And Donald Trump doesn't usually go that far. There was a quote in Michael Cohen's testimony where he remembered driving through Chicago with Trump and Trump commented that only black people could live like this. So there's a lot of evidence that he does have the exact same racial opinions that a white Mm -hmm. nationalist is trying to get you to agree with. And what he is doing here is exactly the sort of press move that a white nationalist would do it is saying that multi big multicultural cities with liberal anti-racist white people are anti-american that they're they're essentially treasonous and that they're betraying some sense of real america and that is something i just never thought i would actually see coming from the federal government uh, it's something i always heard from white nationalist speakers at political conferences where they were trying to trying to set up some kind of social war and get people to be more explicitly racist. But seeing it coming out of the presidency is I, I don't know what happens next.
0: Um, so here we are in the in the final months, you know, we're, we're less than 100 days to Election Day. And what we've seen out of the the Trump campaign is what we've just been talking about—federal troops in in American cities, um, his no pun intended white hot rhetoric—you um, know that's you know pushing the buttons of xenophobia and and racism. Talk about your how are you viewing the 2020 election? What are your what are your concerns, and if any, what are the sort of rays of hope? that you could possibly see as we go closer to election day?
1: I, I spend a lot of my time now trying to figure out what, how I can be helpful to the anti-racist movement. And so this, in a lot of ways, is an extremely encouraging time to be involved in watching at this, in a lot of ways, the fruition of years and years of anti-racist activism. Uh, the, The reason why we have mass protests around the country and around the world around police violence against Black people is because of sustained work by Black Lives Matter activists over years to make that something that people know is happening, that they can't deny, that they understand they have to do something about. And that's it's amazing uh, to have watched that happen. Like most of this movement has happened in the years since I wrote this letter condemning white nationalism and the it's been a sea change of opinion. Uh, 2013, I had condemned white nationalism and I looked up and realized that most white progressives were not talking about anti-racism. They were not concerned about, police violence they were not concerned about discrimination this is a way over generalization but it was not the movement that you see now and seeing that change has to encourage everyone i i I protested in front of lafayette park for days right after the murder of george floyd and that was an extremely integrated crowd there were uh plenty of people of color and black people out protesting. There were also tons of white Washingtonians who really saw this as their cause. And that's extremely encouraging. Uh, At the same time, I don't want to go too far and say that everything is changed here because while progressive white people are much more aware of racial inequity and they recognize how much Donald Trump is coding and pushing out white supremacists, explicitly white supremacist messages, there is also a large segment of the white population that is completely responsive to his anti-immigrant, to his racist rhetoric. And I, I can't give any sort of predictions about the election. I, that's, not, that's not my role. But as we go further into the future, there is a very real possibility that the some aspects of the white nationalist worldview that lots of white people are fearful, that lots of white people are concerned, that lots of white people are reactive to becoming technically a minority in America, that that will continue to have a huge political reaction. And so even if this election defeats Donald Trump, there is no future in America where we do not have to wrestle with the fact that white supremacy is something that exists exists in the opinions of millions of people and that plays a huge role in our politics. If, if, if this is a one-term presidency, we can't walk away from that and say, that's done. That should be the moment where we realize that this is uh, uh, a make-or-break moment for the future of America, and this is the number one issue that we have to reconcile. So how do we reconcile? I, I don't—I'm I don't, not going to use my example and say, that clearly people change their minds, or at least I'm not going to use that too much because I think uh, being a white nationalist leader and growing up among leaders of the white supremacist movement and then reacting and realizing it was wrong and coming out of it that way, like that, that is a somewhat unusual circumstance. But most people are not so embedded in it as I was. I think it's a lot more normal to maybe have similar, maybe have similar characteristics. You, you meet people who challenge you, you become a part of a community that does not accept the uh, assumptions or the biases that you're, that you've grown up with, that you're bringing to the table. And there is no limit to how people can change their perspectives. There's just like, there's no limit to how people can think of who's in their group and who's out of their group and who's a threat to them and who is not a threat to them. Uh, I think if, if the the change in opinions about Black Lives Matter and police violence among uh, Americans broadly, but specifically white Americans over the last few years taught us anything, it's that people can really broaden their opinions and change their fears and change their assumptions. And we need to work on that. Like I work with education groups. I work with uh, political advocacy groups because I, I think it's, it's one of the most one of the most productive spaces if you really chip away at it, but it's not something that happens fast.
0: Um, How fearful should Americans be um, of white nationalists taking to the streets if Trump is not reelected? Some of the things I see, particularly on my Twitter feed, of people being, because of what's happening in in Portland, and especially you mentioned Lafayette, Lafayette Square, was when we first saw the unidentified um, you know, federal troops, people being fearful that you know white militia groups would be coming in and, and interspersing themselves with with these federal troops. so how fearful should Americans be that come election day, if Donald Trump is not reelected, that we could have for all intents and purposes a race war in America?
1: Um, I, I don't want to be too alarmist, but I, I think my real answer to that question is these things have, are happening and have been happening throughout the administration. That I, I don't think we're waiting for a moment where white supremacist violence breaks out. It's throughout this administration, there have been uh, mass shootings both in America and around the world that are motivated by the white nationalist, white supremacist ideology uh, throughout the Throughout the last few months of lockdown and protests, we've had multiple instances of murders and violence coming out of this ideology, and I I, I think that it's true. We could see more of it after or near near the election, but this is a present thing that's happening now. And and I think in a lot of ways the the administration itself stoking this up is causing a lot of it. I, I don't think that it's necessarily his defeat that would create a spike, but maybe his reelection that would.
0: A couple of questions before, before I let you go. Um, so there could be people who are listening to, to our conversation right now, hearing your, hearing your story and hearing you talk about all of these things who might be wondering, why should I believe this guy? Why should I believe that he is, he's had a change of heart? And I've, you know, there have been people who were, you know, closeted, who then, who had very sort of anti-gay voting records and things like that, who come out and beg forgiveness and people in the LGBTQ community and larger co- communities are giving side eyes and saying, well, where were you when we needed you? So when there are people listening now, why why should they believe that you've had a change a true change of heart
1: right i i i never have a really great answer to that other than it was a long experience it was not convenient it was not something that i ever wanted uh was either to grow up being a white nationalist or to condemn it and lose the connections to my family that i i think the only real answer to this is to watch behavior over time. Uh, like I, I am not a person who goes out and says, oh, anybody uh, can just change their mind at any time. I think it's the most difficult thing that a person can do in their life. It was definitely the most difficult thing that's ever happened in my life was that that severing of everyone who had ever been important to me throughout my childhood, throughout my young adulthood. And that feeling that I had no place uh, when I condemned white nationalism, it was not that I was stepping out to be welcomed or heralded by something. It was it really felt like stepping out into a void, but it just was the only choice that felt morally correct and so since then i I spent years being silent uh, and realizing that that was wrong and then i 've spent a few years since then trying to speak out in really specific moments and provide some level of context to what what i what I see going on. And I think that's the, that's the level of action that I, that I can take. I try to work with anti-racist leaders and activists and try to help where I can and try to help plan and do educational materials and outreach. And uh, I'm, I'm not looking for any particular praise for that. I just think that it's, it's a moral choice, just like everyone has a moral choice to decide what, what are your points of connection? What are the ways that you can... You can act that you can do the right thing, and I just try to make those choices
0: final question, Derek, and one that admittedly is is gonna kind of put you on the spot, and that is this um I'm thrilled again to know that you you and Allison have gotten married um which means and i'm not gonna be i'm gonna be that person they're gonna be kids <laughs> so what, what do you want your first child or your children to know about you? Because eventually, you know, they're going to find out who dad was in the early years. What do you say to your child when they come to you and they say, dad, is this true?
1: Uh, I don't know what age that's going to happen. I, I know it will, will eventually happen. And I just hope to be honest. Uh, I hope to give some version of the answer I gave to the previous question that I, I think we, we all need to make the choice that we have in front of us that is most true to our morals and our ethics. And that I don't think that I'm ever going to stop feeling shame for believing in the tenets of white nationalism and accepting them and and acting on them and that I cannot even encompass what harm and damage that spreading those ideas did, but that my choice is the same as other people's, the same as theirs to keep pushing back and trying to do the right thing as you move forward.
0: Derek Black, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast, for sharing your story and for doing everything you can to, to right some wrongs.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Part of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.